Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. I'm your host, Denna. This episode is about white identity development, but not an academic examination of it. A few years ago, I took a class in graduate school that covered racial identity development across different groups, and I learned about Janet Helm's white racial identity development model, which left me intrigued. Coincidentally, around the same time, I read Dr. Beverly Tatum's seminal book, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria, which devotes an entire section to white identity development. Dr. Sahoy Lee, a friend and colleague who's also a board-certified clinical psychologist, joins me to contextualize the topic with a personal anecdote and some psychological context for the ensuing conversation with my guest for this episode, Molly Roth, who identifies as a white woman among other social identities. Take a listen. Again, my resident expert is back with me, and this time we're going to talk a little bit about white folks. When did you first encounter white people? So you grew up in Taiwan, and then you immigrated to the United States. Did you have interactions with white people in Taiwan, or did that happen here in the in the states? Hi, Stena. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, my first experience with white folks happened in Riverside, California, at the age of ten. Folks who might have heard uh, our previous episodes together know that I immigrated to this country at age 10 and first landed in Riverside, California, and lived with my uncle for a few months before my family and I moved to San Bernardino. So my first, very first experience with white folks um, was uh, in Riverside. And that was an interesting experience because I think looking back, those white folks and they were neighbors of my uncle um, were very invested in teaching us how to be white. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> you know, they, Did they have a handbook for you. I don't, I, I, you know, I think I still have a couple copies if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tell me how that looked. Oh gosh. It, you know, it was very much a, a, a I was 10. So what I remember is, again, the thing about a 10-year-old, I was very focused on food. It was my first time having cereal, and they introduced me to it. And I didn't understand this whole thing. Yeah. What comes- kind of cereal? Cinnamon Toast Crunch? No, it was... Um, Frosted Flakes. No, no, no. What is that thing that... Uh, Lucky Charms. All right. Oh, God. Like a bowl of sugar. That's, that's quite the intro to cereal. Okay. I was so confused. I yeah. had no idea what was happening. But <laughs> at 10, yeah. you know, sugar's good. But I, I was so confused when I had my first. Bowl. And again, they, they were really interested in teaching me how to do this. You know, inter- first introduction to PB&J, like all, all of that. Um, and then they took us to church. Yeah. That they would take us on a Sunday morning, my, me and my cousins. And, and looking back, I'm like, the adults never came. My my uncle and my aunt and my parents just let these white folks take us to church on Sunday. They didn't come. We did. Yeah. Yeah. And we went. It must have just been like a youth. Again, I didn't speak English. Keep in mind, I didn't even speak. 
oh, English wow. at the okay. time. So what I denomination? Go, I don't even know. They just taught you to say amen, body of Christ, amen. Just say amen. It was a lot of singing. They sang okay. a lot. All right, okay. But, you know, I was, it must have been like a youth group. So There's a lot of arts and crafts and there was a lot of singing and a lot of, you know, and it was just, it was interesting. I think I was so confused through it all. Um, and looking back, I, I see these folks really trying to help us. We yeah. were the new family in town, obviously family of their neighbors. And they really wanted to help us and really wanted to do for us. They really wanted to provide to us. You, you don't need language to, to feel that, sure. that they yeah. were the helpers and we yeah. were the receivers. And did your family invite them in as helpers or did they just show up on, was this like a sitcom? They showed up uh, to your door knocking like, hey, we're your neighbors. Do you want some <laughs> cherry pie? Like, was it that seamless? Again, at age 10, I don't, I, you know, and I'm, I'm the youngest, so I, I don't always feel like I get invited into these adult conversations. So I don't know if the adults had an agreement that this is what you're going to do to help, you know, my, my young nieces integrate. It wasn't an exchange. And what I mean by that is I, I don't, I don't recall them ever coming inside the house. Oh, right. They never came in, had a meal with us, right? Because they never you didn't invite them in or they didn't want to go in. I don't, I don't know if that was the relationship. Mm, the relationship yeah. was based on them helping us. It, it wasn't based on, well, I've showed you how to do cold cereal. Why don't you teach me how to make dumplings from scratch? Like I, it wasn't that exchange, right? And it was more of a very one-sided. And I wonder more about what that was like for them, why they needed to be the helpers and why we were the, the chosen ones to be helped at the time and what they got out of it. Looking back, that was more about what was for them, I think, and what yeah. they needed to do as white folks than it was really what this immigrant family truly needed at the time. All right, I'm here with my second studio guest in the Stena studio. I'm here with Molly Roth who uh, I met several years ago, about five years ago, when uh, my daughter was enrolled at the local child care center. And um, there was this very kind, sweet high school student I met there that I would have these really interesting interactions with. And over time, those interactions became more seamless. I got to know a lot about her. And I'm messing up. My generational leanings are, are showing up here because I automatically went to she and her and I didn't even ask what her pronouns was and she'll have a chance to share that in a minute but um yeah I saw her recently while I was at a cookout and we started talking and um I felt like she could be a really good guest on the show to talk about how she approaches her interactions across culture um from a racial standpoint and so here she is with me today and I'm happy to have her Molly welcome hello Tell us where you're in school, what year you're in, and what you're studying. Yes, yeah, so I attend the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, I recently transferred there from UMass Boston, so stayed within the UMass system. Uh, I'm a junior, and I'm double majoring in legal studies and cultural anthropology. That is dope. How did you find your way to that major? Which one? Um, cultural anthropology. So I took an intro class at UMass Boston back in 2019, and I fell in love with cultural anthropology. I really enjoy like studying different cultures and 
kind of like understanding how different worlds function and different perspectives, how they intermingle and, and things of that sort. So it was kind of, I took the intro and I just kept taking courses. So I ended up adding it as a double major. Awesome. Cool. And legal studies, where did that come from? Yeah. So legal studies kind of originated back when I was in high school. I've kind of always been interested in entering the legal field. Um, I wasn't really sure how serious I was about it until I did an internship at the Massachusetts State House. And that kind of solidified for me that I was really interested in working in legislation. Um, so I kind of decided to transfer and I pursued legal education at UMass, which is the oldest uh, university to offer legal studies. So. All right. Preeminent. Yeah. Some official stuff. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. And the next step for you is? Law school. Hopefully. All right. Yeah. All but right. besides, I'm also going to London this summer, too, to study uh, wrongful convictions and human rights law. Okay. So tell me a little bit about where this interest in the law came from. I know yeah. you've touched on that just now, but I think there's a story there to is. tell here. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my interest from learning about law and learning about justice, especially equal justice, kind of stemmed from this wonderful instructor I had at Exeter High School. Um, I'm going to name drop. His name is Aaron Blaze. He is amazing, an amazing human being. Um, it's a dope name, Aaron Blaze. Yeah, isn't it? Mr. Blaze. Okay. And it fits him very well, too. Right, yeah. uh, but he kind of offered a course at Exeter, which I would not say fit into the norm of what Exeter normally offers. Um, but it it was kind of like a like a critical race theory class in disguise, Ooh. I kind of think. Okay. Um, <laughs> and this is Exeter High School, not Phillips Exeter yes. Academy. Okay, yes. Yeah, so the continue. public school. Yeah. Um, and his whole class was based on the idea of what is justice. That was our, our final exam. We had to answer what is justice. Mm -hmm. And the whole class was based around following the book Just Mercy by yeah. Brian Stevenson. Um, uh -huh. Are you aware? Yes, yeah. I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a great book, and they have a uh, version for high schoolers, and we followed it, and we listened to all the stories, and we kind of tried to come up with our own ideas of what's justice. And he introduced kind of complex concepts like critical race theory and, and systematic racism in ways that were manageable for 17, 16-year-old brains. Um, and it was from this class and, and learning from Brian Stevenson and from Aaron Blaze that I kind of became fascinated and, and kind of spiraled into researching for myself and taking it outside the classroom. So I did a lot of independent uh, reading of my own and outsourcing. And, and that's kind of how we started having yep, conversations. Yep. Um, and yeah, that's where my love for legal education kind of began and was blossomed. And then it just kind of continued as I got older and as I learned more. Cool. Yeah. So this is a reminder to teachers about how impactful their roles are, you know, in this pandemic period. I know it's been hard on the teachers out there. Just know that um, you continue to inspire and have the ability to propel people into uh, professions that will change many lives. And so my uh, regulars probably realize that I didn't start this episode as I typically do. This is a longer intro to give you some background about Molly. Um, and before we proceed, um, I'm going to have her talk about how she identifies. So Molly, how do you identify? Yeah, so I identify as a cisgender uh, woman, white woman with an abled body from a middle class family are all my identifiers. Y'all hear that? Okay, run that back. <laughs> cisgender 
able-bodied white woman from a middle-class family. Okay, all right. This is all language that I did not have in high school. If somebody <laughs> asked me how I identified, I would have been like black. <laughs> so yeah, we're having very different conversations about identities these days. And what pronouns do you use? I go by she, her, hers. Okay, my fault for just assuming no worries. that I should know better. Okay, and so uh, going back to our initial interactions from Jump, um, we had these very seamless conversations. Um, your energy was very warm. You didn't have any pause. And I say this because there are moments where I encounter white people, regardless of age, and I automatically feel a certain energy. And from day one, you had no pause. And so now I'm curious about your upbringing. Did you grow up here in Exeter? Did you grow up abroad somewhere else? So you're actually not the first person to pose a question like this to me either. Um, it was recently asked to me by one of my closest friends at school. Uh, she phrased it kind of differently, but around the same kind of idea. Uh, and I honestly, I don't even, I don't know. Um, I think so. I, I was born and raised in Exeter. Um, Before and, you continue. Yeah. Exeter, y'all, is 97% or 94% yes. white. Either way, it's in the high 90s. Yeah. When you come out here, you do not miss that. Yeah. So she grew don't. up in Exeter. Please continue. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about these questions this past week as we had touched base last week. And um, I've been thinking a lot about my upbringing and, and uh, two things come to mind. I think the biggest thing for me is I grew up in the theater. So I started acting and doing plays when I was like eight years old. So I grew up in a very accepting, open uh, an environment where we communicated, where we were expressive. And, and I think that kind of environment allowed me to be very vocal and um, it allowed me to communicate everything that I felt and thought very well and kind of it made me into this very extroverted human being. Um, and so, and I, and I think also growing up in the theater just kind of made me aware that there was a world beyond Dexter because I traveled a lot to do theater too. So I would go up into Maine and, and, uh, in Portsmouth, which is still New Hampshire, but, and we had actors come in from all over. So I've had some, um, amazing mentors who were from New York and from California and elsewhere. Uh, so that's kind of like where I spent a lot of my childhood. Okay. And I think that definitely kind of went into making me who I am now. Um, and, and then I would say this, the second thing that comes to mind to me also is just kind of when I started working at the Academy, um, because I, I think that was the first time I found myself in a diverse environment, a diverse community. Um, Racially diverse. Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and it was kind of like a, definitely a life-changing experience for me because I just was immersed in, in a different uh, environment that was was um, different from the one I was used to and the one that I grew up in. And, and it kind of made me question my own environment too, like the growing up in Exeter and, and being in the Exeter school systems. And yeah. That is really interesting. I am so thrown for a loop right now because I thought <laughs> you were going to tell me, and I intentionally didn't ask you for an answer to the questions in advance um, because I just wanted to riff with yeah. the conversation and just go where it took us. Okay, so I would have expected you to say either um, you lived in more diverse communities or your parents intentionally took you to different places every summer and you became more uh, aware of racial diversity at the very least. Huh. And, yeah. and the theater groups that you were involved in, 
uh, were those groups racially diverse? More so than like the community I grew up in. Yes, ah, definitely. Okay, so there was a touch point. Yeah, and I had some mentors too who were more diverse. And um, yeah, so I think so, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, and did you um, go to the Exeter? Did you come up through the Exeter school system? Yes, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say unfortunately? Uh, I have my own uh, uh, ideas about the Exeter school system, but... <laughs> Okay. All right. Um, if you want to touch on that a little bit, you're welcome yeah, to. Yeah, I just think, and this, I actually just wrote a uh, scholarship essay that was about this. And, you know, some part of me like is frustrated that I didn't really learn a lot about racial diversity until Mr. Blaze, until I was 17, until I was immersed at the Academy. Um, and this is verbatim from my, from my scholarship essay, um, like I felt like growing up in this area, there were more instances of like microaggressions and, and even macroaggressions towards people I was friends with or people in my community. Then there were talks about how to be anti-racist, about how to approach conversations, about how to just even be a kind individual. Um, and so that's something I've been kind of uh, grappling with a lot recently, especially yeah. as I've gotten older and thought a lot about my upbringing. Um, yeah. So I, I would say that's where my reservations lie with uh, <laughs> Got it. Okay. Exeter. So in terms of diversity in general, now I'm going beyond race. Yeah. Would you say that from your vantage point, Exeter is very homogenous? Like, no, people are really very much the same. Yes. They might have different personalities, but you're not encountering differences in terms of sexuality, gender identity, no. socioeconomic no. status. For real? Yeah, like growing up, it was like everyone had the Ugg boots, the skinny jeans and the like blonde hair. And that was kind of what it looked like. And if you didn't fit those molds, you were a beacon of bullying, which was. Huh. Yeah. OK. OK. And um, you mentioned Mr. Blaze again. Yes. How did Mr. Blaze identify racially? Uh, he identifies as a white man. When he came to class with this material. Yeah. He introduced y'all to Just Mercy. Yeah. He's talking about these cases. Was it a mixed bag? What was that experience like in the classroom? Were the students as receptive as you or was it a mixed bag? I would say I was, me and a couple other students were similar to how I thought about it and, and how profound it was to me to learn about all this stuff. I think most of the other students were not that concerned with the issues. And, and also there was actually this point in high school where we, Mr. Blaze had asked us, um, because he was very inquisitive and wanted to know our perspectives. And that's something I appreciate about him. He had asked us if we thought that racism exists in Exeter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And he was very like to the point with his questions and yeah. I love him for that. Yeah. Um, and I remember <laughs> there was a girl who identifies as white and she raised her hand and was like, nope, no racism here. None at all. And I remember in that moment, I was like, jaw to the floor. I was like, what? Yeah. And I had raised my hand and responded and was like, I just don't understand like how you're saying that when I personally have seen instances to people that I care about that have had racial microaggressions said it to them. I'm yeah, like, yeah. how can you say that? Yeah. And her response was, well, I just don't see it. Mm. And I was like, well, of course you don't see it. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. that makes sense, but that doesn't mean it's not here. Yeah. Uh, and that conversation got pretty heated between me and the girl, but you know, I appreciate Mr. Blaze for having those conversations and for opening those discussions at kind of a good 
um, age where you're learning how to have these conversations. Mm. And a white man did this. Yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> All right. Now I'm going to ask you another question that might trip me up too. Yeah. Do you come from a household of progressive leaning parents or are your folks more on the conservative end? Are they moderate? What's the political orientation there? So they're definitely progressive. Okay. I would say I'm probably the most progressive out of my okay. family. What um, Woodstock type thing? <laughs> my mom did day. follow the dead, the Grateful Dead for okay. a little bit. So I don't know if that answers some things, okay. but she was a deadhead. All right. um, and my mom is also an incredibly intelligent individual. She's a leader at an institution. She is the Dean of Enrollment Management at Salem State. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. she she's very progressive, very um, open to having conversations. So but she may have modeled a little bit of that yeah, for you. Yeah, okay. definitely. All right. um, definitely in terms of like being open and, and just listening to people, yeah. I, I think was definitely modeled by her. Okay, so I'm getting at uh, socialization, right? So household, school, we talked about extracurricular socialization. So you, you didn't get much of that from Exeter. You got a little drop from this teacher who expanded your mind and the theater experience. All right, now you go to college. Yeah. And you're like in the sea of racial diversity. Yeah. Now you're seeing a lot more of me and yeah. others. Did you enroll at UMass and seamlessly interact with people or were there bumps in the road? So I initially attended UMass Boston. And so that's the most diverse school in Boston. Yeah. And so I think, you know, my uh, going there was very seamless. Uh, and I think it was, um, I mean, it's inevitable that you're going to interact with people who don't look at you like you when you're at a school that is the most diverse school in Boston. Hold on. I know you were like kind of going yeah. somewhere with this. You got there amid the sea of diver racial diversity and didn't feel even slightly uncomfortable. Like, oh my God, I'm no longer in the majority here. No, honestly, I was overjoyed. Um, oh, okay. I was really excited to, and that was one of the biggest reasons actually why I wanted to be in a city is because I wanted to leave like a bubble like Exeter. And I wanted to have interactions and, and be a part of a community that didn't just look like me. I think that's really important for emotional intelligence and, and for growth as a human being is to understand and learn and listen from perspectives that are different from the one you know. Um, so I was excited about it. And did you have any bumps in the road initially? No, not really that I can remember at all. No. So, so even expressing your identity as a cisgender, heterosexual, <laughs> all these terms yeah. that I'm sure weren't bandied about at Exeter High, you just naturally, boom, all right, this, this is how I roll. <laughs> I mean, yeah, wow. pretty much. I, I don't, it was um, pretty seamless. Like I remember I went to my orientation in like the summer before I went and I was just so excited to be in a new environment that, yeah, it was pretty seamless. And I think being extroverted as an individual just mm, helps too, yeah. because I, I'm not afraid to talk to people. Um, I love talking to people. So uh, making friendships and kind of expanding my community was pretty, yeah, seamless. The other thing I'm sure you're experiencing in Amherst and even in Boston is the diversity within the groups. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. they're black folks, but... That's the racial category, yeah. the ethnic category. You have uh, African-Americans, yep. you have Haitians, you have Puerto Ricans, yep. you have like on down the list. Yeah. How did you deal with that? Like, so, initially? yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, it was all very new to me. Um, kind of 
you know, uh, I started learning more so about it uh, through my boyfriend, who's Nigerian. And so I, through his sisters, too, I started to kind of learn the, the differentiations between like how, yes, you have a group of black people, but the, all the different ethnicities and how those interact. And and when I got to UMass, um, a lot of my friends, I, I'm, I have a lot of Haitian friends, but in our group, we also um, have a lot of like uh, African friends. And yeah. so sometimes we're always arguing like, What's better, Afrobeats or, or Haitian compa music? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and let me ask you right now, which one's uh, better? Uh, <laughs> okay, my family's I, I, from Haiti. Go I ahead. know, Go I ahead. know. You know, I love wow. compa music, wow. but wow. I do love those Afrobeats. Mm, I'm not going to lie. That's because your boyfriend's Nigerian. <laughs> and you tell your boyfriend, I said, Ghanaians make better jollof rice. Oh, I will. He's yeah. not going to be happy about that, yeah, but I will. Tell him I said that. <laughs> All right, so back to this matter of um, just your experience on the college campus. And um, I'm thinking specifically about how colleges have this tendency of just throwing students into a mix to get orientation for a day, maybe two, maybe even three. Transfers don't even get that. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, boom, here you are in this uh, community and go forth. Yeah. If you were designing orientation, at a college so mm-hmm. that students could interact with more ease across social identities. How might that look? So I, I feel like I would do it very similar to it. And I um, just got accepted to be an RA for the fall. So I had to take this whole course at UMass. You have to take a course on identities and you have to take a course on like basically exactly what you're saying. Like Hold how... A whole course? Yeah, at UMass, that's how they make you be an RA. You have to take a semester-long course. I just finished. Uh, Yeah, but it was great. It was a great course. And honestly, I feel like it's a course that most people should do because it talks about how, like, honestly, before taking this course, I never thought of myself as like, oh, yes, I'm able-bodied. But then after taking this course, I'm like, yeah, I'm able-bodied. And that's part of my identity. And and that's something I have to be cognizant of and, and also aware of. And Uh, So anyways, I digress. But yeah, it was a great course. Uh, But I think kind of having something similar to that, we did a lot of like team bonding and team communicating exercises where we, you know, we would do the sticky notes and, and we would, um, it would say like things like race, ethnicity, religion, um, uh, class, like uh, sexuality, things like that. And, you know, we would be asked these questions like, which part of your um, identity do you think about the most? Or which part of your identity do you not think about? Or or yeah, it's and uh, which part of your identity do you get asked the most questions about, or, or things like that sort. So, taking those kind of classes and having those experiences this past semester really opened my eyes to like how to have communications and and conversations um, with people about these topics directly. And and sometimes they're it's great conversations because you're kind of talking about your differences and also acknowledging your similarities. And, and it's just a great team building conversation starter. And now I'm like really good friends with most of the people I took this class with. What's so. the name of the class? So they call it education, like uh, three, one, six or something, but it, it, it's for all the peer mentors and residence assistants. And Do you get graded for it? Yeah. Oh, okay. But it's like a one credit class. Sure, yeah. but it's still a class. Yeah. And if you don't pass it, can you still be an RA? Um, probably not. I don't think they would let you know. Okay. Yeah. I am so encouraged and heartened to hear that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And what was your instructor's name? Oh, she's amazing. Her name is Anne-Marie Russell. Uh, She is one of the heads of the Honors College at UMass, and I just applied. So, Anne-Marie, let me in. (laughs) All right, cool. Send this episode to her. I will. (laughs) Yeah, you gave her a shout out and everything. I'm so happy to hear that because there's so many places that think 
it's okay for this all to happen organically. Yeah. Just throw students. And in it the doesn't. Mix. It no. doesn't. Yeah. And that's where people mess up. Like, yeah. I always talk about my own experiences in the generation that I came out of, in particular, the communities I grew up with, where you literally were taught to start with the stereotype. Yeah. Nobody said this to you explicitly, but you started with a stereotype or a joke. I remember so many jokes that started with there was a black guy, white guy, Chinese guy. Like that's, that's how, crazy. Yeah, that's yeah. just how you started a conversation. And you may have just met a white guy and a Chinese guy. It's like, oh, yo, let me tell you this joke. And <laughs> oh my you're God. thinking it's hilarious. And it's like, no, it's highly problematic. But we didn't even use yeah. that term problematic. It seems so inconceivable now to like even think about that. I would be like, who is this person? <laughs> but in some pockets, that is still a thing yeah. where people will start with the most problematic thing. It's like, oh, you're black. Do you play basketball? And it's yeah. like... No, we could actually start a conversation with the hobbies that yeah. we share in yeah. common, a book that you just read, yeah. a, sh- a Netflix series, anything. You don't yeah. have to go to like my outward appearance. Yeah. It's not hard to have a conversation, but we make it hard to do so. Yeah, It, it seems like you have a thought to come in with here. Well, it's just very interesting because honestly, as you're talking, I mean, I think about like my bubble at UMass and like it's it's very, you know umass like you feel like oh everyone's this way and it's great and and, you know we're all open to talking to each other and learning from each other and then you step out of the umass bubble and you're like oh wait Mm -hmm. the world still doesn't function that way in some places and it can be disheartening uh and so i'm gonna conclude this episode with this question for you yeah are there a lot of white people in your friend group and i'm asking this question because um and i should have introduced the question by saying from the pictures I've seen on social media, on Facebook, yeah. you appear to roll mostly with black girls? A lot of my best friends at school who I hang out with mostly um, are all black women. And I would say that to answer your question, um, I do have like a, a other set of friend group um, that is more white. Yeah. Um, but I think the reason why I hang out with my black female friends a lot more is because we have a lot of the same interests. Um, one of my best friends, Kanisha, she also is like pre-law. And yeah. so we do a lot of homework together and we do a lot of uh, conversations like this one uh, together. So I would say I kind of hang out with them more so just because of our interests align a lot in terms of school and in terms of what we our aspirations are for the future. But are they my only friends? No. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, within that group of black women that yeah. you roll with, do you occasionally get the, oh, you wouldn't understand you white. So um, that's a great question. And honestly, I think for, you know, it was an interesting transition kind of joining this friend group because there were a lot of um, conversations that we had when we first all started becoming friends, especially too, because, you know, I'm in an interracial relationship and sometimes you see interracial relationships where someone isn't necessarily respectful of the other person's Mm. race. Mm. And so my friends were a little nervous if I was that way and not respectful Mm. of my boyfriend. Um, And and also I I come from New Hampshire and, you know, people say New Hampshire is the Texas of the North. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you know, because of things like that, there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, my friends have been very open with telling me that they, they were kind of nervous to 
to create a friendship with me. Um, and one of my friends even told me that she was kind of culture shocked even being at UMass in general. She's from Hyde Park and going to UMass, which is a PWI, was like a total culture shock to what her. What does PWI mean for our listeners? Oh, predominantly white institution. All right. Yes, please. Um, Continue. And, and so, but the reason why I love my friends so much is that we all, we all talk about these things. We have these conversations. And, and afterwards, after we got closer, it was, you know, they were telling me, they were like, yeah, we didn't really know if you were like cool or not. We didn't know what your views were. We didn't know what you thought about racism. We didn't know what you knew about racism. We didn't know like things of that sort. And, and once we all kind of got to know each other more so, uh, those, those fears and, and those um, kind of, uh, I don't know if you would call them like perceptions or just kind of, yeah. you know, what you assume about someone. Um, faded, and, and then we were able to have more open conversations. And um, and, and now, you know, they'll say things like, "Oh, I hate white people." Not you, Molly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> or things yeah. like that. You Are know you ever I mean? uncomfortable with that? Do you ever want to like ask them to qualify that? Like, do you mean racist white people, or do you hate white people in general? Like. Uh, it doesn't okay. really bother me because, you know, I, I get it. And there's also, I could say the same about a lot of other white people too, so. But there's a, that's a lot of pressure, I would imagine, um, to live up to being the white person who gets it. I mean, that's a great question. I think for me, like the biggest thing that, and this is not even just with my friend group, but in life, um, I just try to be like aware of things and I try to understand, I try to listen. If I don't understand something, I ask. And if I'm confused about something, I ask and I come from it at a, at an angle that's like, I want to learn more. I want to know that I don't understand this. And if you're willing to, and you feel comfortable with it, could you explain this to me? And that way I could learn better. Mm. I could know more. And also just reading. I think there's amazing books out there too, that can really open conversations to things that you don't quite understand. Um, so just getting your hands on some books and podcasts and yeah, there's a great book and I recommend this one over others that I've read only because the, the guy who wrote it, um, uh, I'm forgetting his name now, but it's called, um, uncomfortable conversations with the black man by Aiko. I can't remember his name. Yeah. But this book is amazing because it, it stems from his YouTube channel where he talks, he would get questions from like, uh, I presume white people who didn't know how to have these conversations about race. And it would be conversations like, oh, can I wear a do-rag or like things like that? Like yeah. that may seem silly, but people just don't even know how to like ask those things. And he would just go about it from a very like, I'm here to teach you and I'm here to answer these questions that you might have and that you're afraid to ask. Yeah. So for someone who doesn't really have a lot of um, experience or knowledge on how to lead a conversation about race, I think that book would be a great starting point. She's back. <laughs> Can't get rid of me now, Stenna. Nope. So you listened to my conversation with Molly. What were some takeaways for you? What really stood out for me with Molly is that she's been on this journey. Um, and I appreciated what she said in the middle of the, of the episode where she said that she was frustrated. She was frustrated that it took until age 17 that some of these conversations started for her. I appreciate that frustration that she experienced because I think my sense is that it ignited something within her to want to do more, want to learn more, and that it wasn't just about her but that recognizing that if it took me 17 years to have these conversations, what about others? What about folks younger yeah. um, than me? And, and so 
And full disclosure, I know Molly in a different context. She works at a child care center uh, where my children go. And I, I think I see her in the way she interacts with children. And I think that informs it, right? She's wanting to make sure children are starting some of these exposures, their reading materials and interactions a lot younger and that they won't take my children until they're 17 to have these conversations. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I really appreciate that about Molly. And what I also appreciate what Molly shared is just how frequently she and her closest friends have conversations. And then she never said they were comfortable conversations. She yeah. said that they were deep conversations. And, and that's why they're best friends, I think, right? Like over time, and maybe in the beginning, they weren't so sure about this white girl wanting to, you know, uh, and I'm thinking about her friends who are uh, specifically of African descent, not sure about this white girl. And over time, they keep having these deep conversations that show them, and I think Molly showed herself that like, she is who she is, and she is invested in better understanding of cross-cultural differences. And I love when she said, I really try to listen. And when I don't understand or I get confused, I ask questions. Yeah. And I just think that's it. That's that's it right there. Listen to understand and then be okay to ask questions. I think in our current culture, there's there's the cancel culture. Mm. And to me, what I get mad about the cancel culture is that it stops the conversation. Yeah. You're bad. You messed up. You're, you know, you're racist. You messed up, you know, whatever. And, and I'm not saying, you know, there are people out there that just need to be canceled. But yeah. 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 <laughs> what I'm saying, do we give each other enough of that grace? Do we give folks enough of that room to grow and grow means make mistakes? Yeah. And sometimes if we ask questions, a uh, concern that's come up for me is, at times when a question comes up, it's interpreted as gaslighting. So because you asked me a question about an experience that I had, you're doubting that I had this experience and invalidating it. And it's like, no, I'm really trying to understand what yeah. happened. So it's hard for people to ask questions. It is so hard for people to ask questions because there's a fear right? And we talked in other episodes about this fear and awkwardness when you're entering a conversation is you don't want to mess up. And you especially don't want to mess up if you have witnessed other people messing up and getting canceled, yeah. Yeah. right? So yeah. it's safer now to just say nothing. It's safer now to not engage. But to me, those are very much missed opportunities to go deep the way that Molly and her friends have gone deep. Right. You know, and as I was talking to Molly, I was thinking to myself about Janet Helms' white racial identity development model, which I learned about in graduate school. I'm by no means an expert on it, but I was really intrigued about this idea of people developing on a continuum. And um, I also read Dr. Beverly Tatum's book, um, Why Do All the Black Children Sit Together in the Cafeteria? And she touches on racial identity development in that book, if anybody's curious. But anyway, going back to Molly, um, I was thinking about where would she fall and how did she move along the continuum? Do you know about Janet Helms' white racial identity development model? What can you tell us about it? And where yeah. would you place Molly on the continuum if you were guessing? 
Yes, I am familiar. And I also studied it um, as an undergrad at UC Irvine. Um, and it, it's interesting. And I'll just briefly mention the importance of mentorship. You know, Dr. Janet Helm mentored my mentor at, in, in undergrad. So Dr. P Thomas Parham and, and Joe White, all prof professors at UC Irvine. And they reference it as the freedom train. You know, they train all of us students, undergrads and graduate students over the years just to keep the learning going and keeping that the knowledge going. So anyway, so I am familiar with that. What I also understand about these stages development is that um, she calls them statuses, right? It's not a stage per se, but it's just kind of where you're at in a given point about who you and how you understand yourself and, and your whiteness in, in this model. But there are other racial identity development models as well. Going back to where I think um, Molly might be, I kind of put her in the um, immersion immersion yeah. stage, right? Like she's still trying to figure out what this means for her and who am I really racially? I think she's asking a lot of these questions. What, when you look at these different statuses and there's six, if you notice the descriptions of the statuses, what you might notice is that the early stages are full of emotions, yeah, yeah. right? A lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of discomfort, a lot of anger even. And then what you notice over time as people work through these stages or statuses is that it's not about the feelings anymore, right? It's about what now? Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to what? how I live, what I do for others? How do I impact others? And I think that is critical. You've got to work through those feelings to get to the other side. But yet human beings, we do not like messy feelings. No, no, we don't. We shy away, right? You know, if I when I think about someone like Molly, who is so skilled and invested in having some of these conversations and understand race, I don't think that she's necessarily ashamed of being white either. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, she's yeah. proud of who she is. And she's also very invested in this work, not just for herself, but for everybody. So in my conversation uh, with Molly, what was a missed opportunity you feel? Hmm. Well, I thought it was a great conversation. Um, I think what got me curious kind of left me hanging a little bit just because it's such a good conversation. I wanted more was she ended the episode speaking about her, uh, her, her friendship with uh, black women, yeah. more specifically her best friends and how that's shifted over time. Yeah. I found myself being curious and wanting to know more. What has it been like for her and her white friends? She, yeah. she, she referenced uh, a group of white folks that she, she hang with I don't know. I just kind of got curious. What has it been like for her and their relationship? Uh, has she gotten any pushback? Has she got any misunderstandings? Has she got any, uh, has she set up models that have allowed other white folks in her circle to say, oh, wow, like, huh? I, I don't know. I'm curious about that and what that's been like for her. So I've encountered white people who have been on the journey, they're on like the furthest end of Janet Helms spectrum. They're not trying to figure out their racial identity. They're curious about others. They're very comfortable across race. 
But what I find is the further along these folks are, the more they're trying to reject other white people. So they don't want to be in the company of especially problematic white people. They don't want to go back and do the work with other white people because um, in their minds, they've arrived, they've moved past that, and they don't want to be associated with the problematic ones. Um, I'm not saying that I heard that in my conversation with Molly, and if I had probed a little bit more, maybe I would have heard that, but that's not something that comes across in Helm's racial identity development model. Would you agree with that? I agree. I think it will be unfortunate for folks to reject uh, the problematic ones. Here's why. Yeah. As a white person, you're going to have more power in correcting the problematic ones than me or yeah. you, Sina. Yeah. Right. And I think about Molly's teacher. You know, there's this mm. white male teacher in New Hampshire at the local public school who is going rogue a little bit and teaching something, right? He's a white man teaching That him. liberal indoctrination. <laughs> <laughs> He's out there teaching and in a class of, I don't know how big her class was, and she talked about this. There was only a handful of them, herself included, that got moved by it, right? Yeah. And one might say like, well, what's all that work to only move a couple? And my perception tend to be, you move the couple, yeah. right? You, this teacher, Mr. Blaze, I think is his last name. It's like a really cool last name. Yeah. What he's doing has impacted a person like Molly. Now Molly's going to go and keep impacting other folks, right? Like that's that's where it's at. And I hope white folks understand that they have this power within their own group to move folks in a way that I don't think I, I, I can as a person of color. It just lands differently. Um and I, I, I think, yeah, go ahead. Can I come in and respond to that? I agree with you to an extent because I've also heard young white men in particular talk about being ostracized because they were coming off as too woke. <laughs> you know, they were too woke among their white male friends. And so they started to lose status. Even from a heterosexual perspective, if a bunch of heterosexual males are making homophobic comments and I come in and I'm like, Hey, that's not cool, man. Like, we got to be better than that. The first question is, what, are you gay? You know, and it's like, no, I, I, I'm not gay and I don't have to be gay to stand up for gay people, but okay. I may be ostracized for that. So then what? What's it worth to you? And that's a wrap. As I noted in the intro, the plan for this episode was to offer some cursory thoughts about Janet Helm's white racial identity development model, which has six stages beginning with what is referred to as a contact phase where white people are unaware of their own racial identity, resistant to the idea of systemic racism or ideas about privilege. Later stages of white identity development demonstrate greater personal and social awareness, along with a propensity towards actively resisting racism. Pick up Dr. Beverly Tatum's book if you want to dive deeper into Janet Helm's theory. Special thanks to Sahoy for offering her insight and professional perspective. I'm also grateful for Molly's willingness to have this conversation and her commitment to social justice, along with how she's modeling the importance of approaching interracial exchanges with humility and care. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. Identity.
identity and me.